Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. I'd like to welcome my special guest, Dan Ryan. Dan is the VP of Real Estate Facilities and Travel for Pegasystems, Inc., an MCR holder from Cornet, Dan has worked in corporate real estate for over 25 years for some of the best-known tech companies in the Boston area. A global executive that has worked in major markets around the globe, Dan has immersed himself in the local cultures to provide excellent service to all his customers. Dan has spent the last 12 years with Pegasystems implementing a real estate strategy to support this innovative and fast-growing SaaS company. Dan and his lovely wife of 35 years, Kathy, live in North Andover, Massachusetts. Hey, Dan, welcome. Very happy to have you on as a guest today. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Sandra. Very excited to join. I mean, this is a topic that I, I get really passionate about. So uh long-time real estate and facilities person, have worked in tech for almost all of my career, but actually started out in the Boston area working for the Boy Scouts of America as a district executive. So I've, I've done a lot of really interesting jobs throughout the years, but have spent the last 20-plus, almost 25 years working in the real estate and facilities world for, you know, many well-known tech companies within the Boston area. What made you want to get into facilities? I wanted to travel, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. It, really? It, it, you know, it's a, it's a funny story um, because uh, I was working as a procurement manager for a software company, and the woman who was managing the facilities for the company decided to leave and go to a company down in Florida. And I went to my boss and I said, hey, listen, I'd like to have her job in my job and will backfill my procurement role. And he said, you know, I hadn't thought about that. He said, let me sleep on it. And I'll come back to you tomorrow. And he came back to me the next day and he said, listen, I have no question in my mind as to whether or not you can do both jobs. He said, but I'm unwilling to give up one of my direct reports. Pick one and I'm going to backfill the other and have them report to me. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to learn something about this real estate facility stuff. I want to get a new challenge. And uh, so I started managing a real estate portfolio that was uh, Mississippi, east of the Mississippi River in Europe. Um, not so much Europe. They weren't willing to give that to me as the okay. new guy on the block, <laughs> but quickly showed them that I was more than capable and, and never looked back, have thoroughly enjoyed doing it, um, have traveled the world, um, have ridden camels around the pyramids of Giza, have walked the Great Wall of China, have seen the Taj Mahal. So I've been very, very lucky and blessed to, to be given the opportunities that I've been given. That's pretty cool. I've uh, I've never heard someone as worldly as you in facilities management. So definitely you've been a lucky one in that regard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. really enjoyed it. Have friends around the world, you know. I grew up in a little town in western Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, uh, if I had followed 
what the path I think my parents thought for me, I would have been working in a factory somewhere making toothbrushes. Um, but, uh, here, here I am, you know, my mom used to play bridge with all of her senior citizens friends. She'd go, Oh, Danny's in India today. And, you know, thinking that I'm some big, big wig. And I said, Ma, listen, I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. There's, there's nothing special. I just sort of fell into it and, have earned the right to be able to do it. That's great. That's great. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the world of facilities management, what's happening in the world of offices. As we know, there are a ton of challenges in organizations who are trying to figure out their next step. As we think about return to office, as we think about hybrid and kind of all of these new things that are emerging that is very different from what the office was like in 2019. What puzzles are you trying to solve in your organization following the pandemic? And how do you know that they're the right ones to solve? <laughs> that in and of itself is the trillion dollar question. Um, you know, challenges. I, I don't look at it as challenges. I call this the single biggest transformation of any industry in the history of work. You know, we as real estate facilities professionals used to have some things that were just given. You know, uh, a person filled the seat. If they were salespeople, they didn't fill any seats for the most part because they were remote. And if you were in professional services, we had some kind of a ratio. And that was a given. That's no longer a given. And it used to be the same for every company. And now, depending on who you talk to and who the leadership of that company is, it could be the old one or it could be something that's 180 degrees in an opposite direction. <laughs> and there is no rhyme or reason to it at all. People used to look at real estate and facilities professionals as the guy who just took care of the office. Finally, for those that didn't have a seat at the table, they're now being asked to come in and explain why they have either too little or too much space. You know, we've all seen some of the recent articles about some companies that have mandated people to come back to work, but they don't have enough people. They don't have enough space for them to come back to work when they mandated it because they didn't take any additional space during the beginning of the pandemic to be able to accommodate the people that they were hiring. And and it's not just real estate facilities. I own travel and I own physical security, too. And travel is just as crazy as real estate and facilities. I mean, there is just all sorts of craziness going on there, too. Now, a lot of it's related to the ability to hire people because so many of the boomers have decided to retire early and nobody had planned for it. And they lost a, a tremendous amount of talent. I mean, think of pilots that have to retire at 60 years old. You know, they had mm -hmm. two years where they didn't need pilots. And then all of a sudden, they, when they needed them, they couldn't get any because they hadn't kept the, the pipeline going. So as far as what we're trying to do is we're we're trying to make sure that we understand what people's needs are. We're trying to make sure that everybody understands the give and take of the decisions that they ask for. Hey, if I want to be, if you're going to be remote, then be remote and accept that you're not going to have a permanent seat. A lot of the challenges that we have are being able to 
make sure that people understand the impact of what they're asking and that there isn't any company out there that should, if they're being fiscally responsible, holding seats for people just if they want to come in, not because they are coming in, right? And that's the, I think the, the biggest thing that most real estate people are now trying to justify is you've got some management and talking to some of my friends that are out there that want people to come in, but they're unwilling to put mandates in place. So the leadership is saying, no, don't give up the space yet. They might come back. And, you know, I, I can't guarantee it, but in tech, you know, I think it's going to be really hard to get people to come back. I, especially, especially companies that have spent the last two years hiring the best talent, not just the best talent within a 30 mile radius of any particular city. And how do you tell the team that's within that 30 mile radius that they have to come to the office, but the people that are outside of that 30 mile radius don't? And that's going to be the biggest challenge to managers that want people to come in and collaborate. And that's what's going to be the single biggest challenge for guys like me is what kind of an office do I have to build in order to catch those people that are on the edge of coming in or not? Those that want to come in are going to come in anyways, right? If you live within five minutes of the office you're always going to be there. We're going to have a seat for you. And that's those that are in the 15 to 30 minute range. They're going to come in pretty consistently three days a week because it's still not a heavy lift. Anybody outside of that half an hour or 45 minute radius, you're going to have to do something pretty special to get them to come in or have a manager that has a really good reason to bring the team together periodically in order to collaborate and work together. And then the question is, does the office support that collaboration, depending on how that team wants to do it? Yeah. Now, you've, you've raised some really um, interesting points. So just on that last thing with respect to the commuting time or and or even the distance, we find that to be true even in our data set as we look at, you know, commuting patterns and looking at how frequently do people actually come into the office. And so absolutely true that the further away that you live from the office, the less likely it is that you're you're going to come into the office. And, you know, obviously there's going to be a challenge there in terms of figuring out what is going to bring people back. I think what's really interesting, too, is are you able to also determine things like, you know, what percentage of your population falls into those buckets? Because I think that would be really useful as well, where you're working with your HR department to figure that out. We haven't done it recently because we had signed most of our leases in all of our cities um, Mm -hmm. prior to the pandemic. So, you know, making those changes are more going to be reducing it to accommodate the number of people that are coming in versus what do we need in the future? So I see this as a right sizing of the real estate portfolio issue versus where are people living? Um, right. You know, it's helpful information. It's good data. We used it for making a lot of our decisions at the time, but I'm not sure. So to answer your question, no, I haven't gone back and rerun that. I do know that a lot of people have moved around since and, and a lot of people have left and changed. You know, if, if the great resignation continues, 
you almost have to run that report every six months in order to make sure that it was up to date. And I'm not sure what that information would give you because for me, it's really coming down to how many people are coming into the office versus what's going to happen in the future because I, I, I don't know about your crystal ball, but mine's not that, mine's a little cloudy right now. So, um, I can only look at what's happened in the past and try to make some, um, guesses as what's going to happen in the future. And, and I do that more by talking to people, not necessarily, um, looking at data as far as where they're living. Because again, I'm the guy that's in that 35 mile radius, but mm-hmm. it, if I go in on Monday and Friday, it's great. I, I can get in and get out without a problem. I can do it in 35 minutes, you know. But if I took mass transit to get into the Boston office, it took me two hours the other day from the moment I left my house until the time I walked into the door. But I went to the office this morning. It took me 35 minutes to get there in my car. Now, try to do that on Wednesday, completely different scenario, right? It's still going to be that same two hours on the on the train, you know, 20 minutes to the train station, 10 minutes hanging around waiting for the train, another hour for the train to get into Boston, and then a 20-minute walk to get to the office. It adds up. If you break it down into the individual components, it doesn't seem like a lot. But when you add it all up, it's like, holy smokes, that was a long commute. And so because people are going in one day a week, they're not willing to give up their cars. They're not willing to take the train. They want, they, they've gotten used to having that flexibility and that choice to do whatever they want whenever they want, mm-hmm. as opposed to having to be there for nine o'clock in the morning and not leave until five o'clock at night. God, if you look at the, the commute travels around Boston right now, the return commute starts at two o'clock in the afternoon. It's really fascinating how our work patterns have changed over mm-hmm. the last two and a half years. It really yeah. is incredible. Yet, you know, on the flip side, though, we have a lot of employees. One of the biggest things that we're getting back in some of our surveys is people wanting permission to turn off. You know, never had that issue pre-pandemic because people worked nine to five. They got in their cars or got on the train, maybe did some email on the train on the way in, didn't necessarily do it on the way home, but they shut off. But people have been working from home for two years now or plus, and they've lost the ability or feel that they've lost the ability to shut off. And so that's been really interesting. That's one of the things that we're trying to address in some of the new information that we're sending out about hybrid work is that it's okay. Just have that discussion with your manager that, hey, these are the hours that I'm going to be available. You know, but there's there's no one that's also complaining about taking a two-hour lunch either. They're complaining about being ever shut off, but they're not complaining about, gee, I I don't have to start my day at 9 o'clock in the morning anymore. I can start my day at 7 and be done at 3 if that's what I want to do. There's nobody that's complaining about that. And so I think that's part of the other thing that we're talking about is that it is a mutual responsibility, that you need to communicate to your boss about what hours you're going to work in order to get that block of stuff done and and get what you need to get done in that time frame. But also you need to communicate to people when you're not going to be available. And, and I think we need to put some guardrails around what is acceptable depending on the job 
title. So if you're an individual contributor, you don't have to work with anybody around the world. Fine. You want to work four o'clock in the afternoon until 12 o'clock at night, knock yourself out. That works. Um, but if you're going to be dealing with people in India, sorry, you've got to start your day pretty early in the morning to get that overlap time so that you can talk with your coworkers and be able to work. That's got to be part of it. But we, we need to have more communication. You know, uh, we really need to learn uh, not just to talk as we are into a piece of technology, but to really collaborate. We've sort of lost that with having this electronic separation from each other, from yeah. my standpoint. You know, we just, I just had my team here from um, around the world. I got two guys here in the United States and two guys, one from India and one from Poland here. And we spent a week together. It was the best way to get reconnected, you know, and everybody was like, wow, this was productive. You know, we thought that we were well connected and everything else, but managers like myself have got to bring their teams together and reconnect with people. I call it breaking bread. But, you know, if you break bread with people, you will build connections that will last forever. And we sort of have forgotten how to break bread with each other and how important that is to the success or failure of companies and and reaching goals. Wow. You're getting me on my high horse today, Sandra. I thought we were going to talk about data here a little bit. We are. We are in a a second. Um, I was just going to ask you, how do you manage expectations? So just thinking about, you know, previous organizations that I worked in where, you know, you have different teams that are managing, you know, flexible work, which are now calling hybrid. I mean, it's had so many different names, but somehow there's always this inadvertently you're creating this have and have not just because of the nature of what people do, right? Is that some people – as part of their job, there's a certain requirement. And so they're not going to have the same level of flexibility as others who work in the same organization. And so how do you manage those expectations or just those differences within within the organization? First of all, in the corporate stuff, you got to say there's going to be people that have different jobs and that the flexibility that is granted certain people is going to be different than others. I mean, let's just get it out there. Let's recognize that there's a difference between all of us. I had a discussion with a manager the other day, and he said, I want you to come out with a corporate standard. I said, oh, really? Why? Because I don't want to tell my people that they have to come in. I want you to, and I just want to say, I'm sorry, corporate said that you have to come in. I said, well, wait a minute. What about all of the people that all and all the managers that don't feel their people should be coming in? Are they now going to break the rules because they don't want to force their people back? Why would I do that? He said, well, I guess I don't want you to do that either. There's a lot of relearning that's going on on how to be a manager. And one of the things that we're talking about with our hybrid program is that we need to come up with some new training programs about how to reconnect with your employees how to have these hard discussions, how to be transparent in your Mm -hmm. communication. That's the way that you solve that problem, at least as far as I'm concerned. You know, I've got receptionists and, and cleaning people and stuff like that. 
they can't do their job without coming into the office. And that's what they're told. Hey, this is an in-office job. You want to wear a mask every day? Go ahead. Our receptionist in Cambridge wears a mask at the front desk every day. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a personal choice. And there's hand sanitizer there and everything else. And she's perfectly happy and content to to do that. No one's wigged out by it in any way, shape, or form. But these are the kinds of discussions that managers have to have with their employees and manage. That's why this is another Danisms. That's why you get paid the big bucks, right? You, to, to be able to have these discussions and learn how to explain to people what the goals of the organization are and how you think those goals are going to be accomplished. There's no magic here. This is no different than any other business problem. It's just a difficult thing for some people because they've never faced it. And, and they think that there's some magic in how to communicate it, but it's nothing more than just being transparent and having a dialogue around it. But understanding, you know, um, I got a great boss here at Pega and we were talking about, um, hybrid versus remote. And what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, we got to talk with the various departments about do you have hybrid workers or do you have remote workers? Because if you have hybrid workers, that means that they're going to be expected to come into the office in some frequency. I don't know what it is. Three days, two days, one day, one day a month. I don't know what it is. But if they can't get in because you said they're hybrid and they work down in Connecticut and our office is in Massachusetts, highly unlikely that they're even going to be in once a month. And so are they remote? And if they're remote and the 10 other people in their team are not, how do you expect the nine to come into the office? And these are the real, these, this is where the rubber meets the road. Those are the hard things that we've got to solve for and have the answers ready. Um, but we've got to go through some training sessions to, to get the consistent answer. And it could yeah. be because I said so. And for some employees, that'll be acceptable. For some, it won't be. And they'll have to decide what do they want to do in those instances. It's actually interesting. I was thinking about it just this morning in terms of, you know, maybe there's a there's a significant difference between companies who have locations in different parts of the country, you know, different parts of the world where, like you said, is that, you know, you have more of that remote flavor to how people work. And so, yes, you will have people who all reside within a certain state or a certain city that that have access to the office, but then there's people who don't. And so in that scenario, you've got hybrid because, well, again, what depending on how you define hybrid, to me, hybrid is the basically the collusion of the in-office and the remote workers that are working together. They're not necessarily all in the office at the same time, but there's this constant sort of change of who's in, who's out, who's working remotely, who's working, you know, in the office, right? Well, um, you know, I that's part of it, but there's there's a much more complicated piece of this, right? Consistently, one of the biggest questions I get is how do I know when Sally's going to be in the office? Because Sally is the person that I want face-to-face time with. 
And I said, well, did you make a reservation? She said, no. I said, why not? Because I don't know when Sally's going to be in. I said, okay, let's, let's do it. Let's do the flip side here. If you don't make a reservation and Sally says, I only want to come in if Janie's in the office, how is she going to know whether Janie's going to be in the office? You know, everybody's waiting for the other guy to move and that's never going to happen. And that's the single biggest challenge. You know, we created a really a usable reservation system, but nobody uses it because they don't know if Sally's going to be there and they don't want to make a reservation and then not use it. So it's been really interesting. I don't know who's the chicken and who's the egg. I don't even know which one's supposed to come first anymore, right? And so some of the things that we have talked about, it's not the remote people in the in the sometime in office that I care about. It's the in office people that want to come in and be there at the same time and not be the only guy that's in there when they're having a meeting and yeah. everybody else be remote. That's the because they, they almost the guy that came in, everybody's sort of like Look at that. Charlie came into the office and we're all at home, right? It's really kind of interesting. But I'll, I'll, I'll give it two of the things that we have learned. Number one, if you're a senior person, you've got to publish a calendar of when you're going to be in the office and you have to stick to that calendar or you have to give people advance notice that something's come up and you can't be in. If you're a senior manager and you're telling people that you're going to be in and then don't show, then people will never come into the office because they're saying, mm, nope, sorry, not interested. Um, and, and the big guy's not going to be there. So I'm not going to get FaceTime. Um, and, 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 and I can show very specific examples. You know, we've had a senior manager who said, okay, I'm going to have my staff meeting. And everybody said, Oh, and I'm going to be in this office. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. And then the day before the meeting, Message came out. Uh, something's come up. I'm not going to be able to be there tomorrow. I'm not going in. I'm not going in. I'm not. I mean, it was almost the same exact sequence of people when they sort of chimed in. And so, you know, there, there are very specific examples of that. And people want FaceTime and productivity time with senior people to be able to either have that mentoring opportunity or to impress them with their knowledge and expertise and and senior managers need to be aware that when they're in the office their time is going to be drawn for these people meetings and they need to accommodate that they need to be walking around talking to their people because that's their time to break bread you know and yeah. and I would tell I would tell any senior manager that any time that they go into the office if they don't have a lunch schedule with somebody it is a lost opportunity to build a uh, some stickiness with key employees because they took the time to be able to sit down and just get to know these people that um may not have had that chance to meet you know um Back to my meeting last week, you know, 
the biggest thing I did was schedule a lot of senior managers to come through and talk about what they're doing and have lunch with us. We learned more about what's going on with the company in those hours and what people are thinking about how work is going to happen than we could on any one of these meetings because it was a free flow of ideas. There was no agenda. And we went all over in these discussions where if it was pre-planned and, and had an agenda, it wouldn't have worked um, nearly as well as it did while we were just sort of sitting around. Um, and, and it makes a big difference, big difference. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. I think the key, the key there, at least from what I'm hearing, is, you know, accessibility is if you're going to be in person, then you need to be accessible. Like you shouldn't be going in and just, you know, sitting in your office as a senior leader. But I think that there's something to be said also about even just being accessible online. Like, I mean, to me, like my experience in particular in having worked, you know, uh, in hybrid environments, working from home, being remote 100 percent and not having sometimes the luxury of going to the office just because the office is located elsewhere. And whether you're managing a team, in which case I do, and it's kind of like, OK, you have like, you know, virtual office hours where the team can ping you as needed so that you're you're there and you're available to support them just as they would walk up to your your desk or your office and ask you a question. And some people see that as being disruptive. Like some people say, well, you know, that sort of, you know, chips away at my productivity. But I think that's really how you keep cohesiveness on on your team is having time that you know that you're accessible, you're available, that you're there uh, in order to keep things moving, moving forward. Well, you know, the other thing that I think we've we've lost the ability to do is if you're reading an email and a question pops into your head, rather than responding to the email, do you just click on WebEx or Microsoft Teams or something like that and just go to the person that sent the email and said, hey, I was reading this. We hadn't talked in a while. How's everything going? And can you answer this question for me? You know, if we were in the office, you would have just walked over to the person rather than sending him an email. email. <laughs> Why aren't we doing it remotely? Right. And so we've we've lost the ability to have those water cooler moments and we got to get back to having them. And people have to do some of this stuff consciously. Um, and. uh you know, whether it be in the office or, or with technology, stop sending the emails. It's funny because if I think back on way long before, you know, pandemic, actually there was an article I posted yesterday on LinkedIn about what do they call it? Desk bombing. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what is this? And it was, you know, the fear of going up to someone's desk and asking a question. And it made me think about, you know, when I was at Nike back in the 90s, I remember we used to have. We actually had days of the week where we were not allowed to send emails because you were in the office. Everybody was in the office at the time. And instead of walking over to someone's desk to ask them a question and have those so-called water cooler moments, you relied very heavily on email and you just sent messages and it was kind of like, okay, it's done. And then you throw the onus of responsibility on whoever you're sending that email to, to respond back rather than get up and go over and ask the question and have a a friendly conversation that right. you can learn something. Right. And so I don't know that that's what we're experiencing is the result of the pandemic. I think that that was always there and it's just, there's a, it's a tool for communication and we lean very heavily on 
the tool for communication, but I think there's also a level of accountability or responsibility where you send an email, your job is done. You've asked the question or you've, you know, you've popped, you know, you've raised a concern or whatever. And so now the onus shifts to someone else versus having a live discussion that's not documented. Cause that's the other piece of it too, is, is that by working remote, you've got this new thing where everything you do is documented. And if you're having a telephone conversation, right. And again, just thinking about historically how people think about work and just kind of accountability, the, the whole documentation part of it, I think really slants the comfort level that people feel with having telephone conversations because of the fact that often those conversations are not documented like they are with an email. Cause you can always pull up an email and say, Hey, you know, we talked about right. this months ago, but you can't do that when you're having a, a face-to-face conversation, which is unfortunate, but it is the reality, you know, for a lot of people in a lot of workplaces, right? Uh, you know, but by the same token, I always tell my people, go talk to them and then send them the email. Yeah. You send, if you've, <laughs> if you've sent an email more than, more than twice, you gotta go and talk to them. Pick up the phone because there is a disconnect somewhere and you are not communicating because the receiver does not understand what you're sending. And I, I get it. There's a lot of introverted people that don't want to go and do it, but I can tell you some instances where we had created uh, what we ended up calling uh, team rooms. Well, let's just call it a team room. And there were eight to ten engineers in the room. This is what they asked for. They had their own AV. They had um, a central desk where they could come together. Um, and there would be people in the room talking about something, and they would get a wrong answer. And one of the other engineers would send one of the two that were talking, no, the answer is this, rather than taking his headphones off and going and and entering the conversation, they would send a text message saying, no, this is the answer. So even though you create environments in which you think is ideal, for collaboration and communication, it may not necessarily not get you what you think. <laughs> you know, for every action, there is an opposite and equal reaction, you know. So we created these team rooms for these teams to work together, but we absolutely decimated cross-team collaboration because they could close their door and only work on what they wanted to work on rather than hearing what the other guys were were feeling or thinking or how they were going to solve a problem and make sure that the other teams were tied into that decision, they could easily say, ah, we'll be good. Don't worry about the other guys. They'll catch us. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's fascinating, you know, how you think you're doing something fantastic, but it has an, an equally uh, degradatory impact on the organization. For sure. Okay, so let's uh, let's switch gears and let's talk a little bit about uh, the data journey. So obviously, being you know on the on the customer side, you know you're obviously you're seeing that there's a requirement to understand what's happening within your organization. So tell us a little bit about what your data and analytics journey looks like. First off, is like who owns it within your organization? I do. I'm, I own real estate facilities, so I own it. 
Um, you got to understand a little bit about my personality, right? I've always told my staff, it's not the first question that you ask. It's the second or third question that gets you the right answer. So I am by nature a very inquisitive person. I don't accept anything at face value. If you answer a question uh, the same way three times, but it was asked three different ways, then I know that I'm getting what seems to be the truth. Um, if you answer it differently, then you either don't know the answer or I'm missing something in the way that you're answering the question, and I have to probe that further. Um, as far as our data journey is concerned, um, I've always had a mantra with my teams is we will not create any more data until we have consumed everything that we already have. So let's get the preliminary answers to what's going on from the data that we already have so that we can, one, understand that. And then once we understand that data that we're getting, then let's ask more questions and see where the data is insufficient to answer those additional questions. And so, you know, we've gotten some fantastic data from our access cards on our offices, and we know how many people are coming in, and that attendance is so low, I don't need any more data than what I get from the HR data that's on those cards. because. Knowing that there's 35% people in every one of our areas tells me that I still have way too much space. Now, once we start to look at what we want to do and get management approval and we tighten things up either by closing floors and saying, hey, we're going to a hybrid work program and we're going to push you all up to these floors so that you have the ability to collaborate with somebody else other than going, hey, where is everybody, right? Then we can look at what additional data we need to be able to understand how the space is being utilized. Now, where we're having significant challenges and it really comes down to the complexity of the data is what we're getting from our WebEx unit. So the WebEx units from Cisco have the ability to, to identify individual faces in the room and it keeps track of how many faces it recognizes. Now, when I say recognize, it doesn't know your face. We don't use facial recognition to know that Sandra is in our mm -hmm. conference room, right? We don't, we don't get down to that level. We just know that there's a person in there, not a goat, right? And so, um, we're trying to understand that data and tie it to the Microsoft Office reservation system. Because again, if somebody sends out, we're a global company, right? And they send out an invitation for 12 people, but there might only be one person in a 12 person conference room. And so we want to start to be able to, to understand, on average, if I send out an invitation to 12 people, how many attend? And how often does Sally send out invitations to 12 people and no one attends, yet she has that one big conference room every Tuesday at 7 o'clock in the morning for that team meeting? Why aren't we raising our hands saying, hey, why are you taking this big room? Or should we take that big room because every other meeting that follows it for the rest of the day is only two people, and maybe we should just create 
three, four-person rooms because of the demand. This is where the data is getting really complicated, and we need data scientists to be able to help us understand that and and be able to put it into a dashboard that other people can understand or make sense out of it with some of that stuff. I don't have people that can take that really complex stuff and do it. The bad stuff I can do myself with Power BI. And, you know, those are the things. And then the other thing that we're trying to figure out with WebEx is how accurate is it? Mm -hmm. You know, if it's using facial recognition software, what happens if my face is hidden behind you and the camera can't see it? Are we counted as one or are we counted as two people? So that's the other thing that we're trying to do is figure out a way that we can put a couple of sensors in some of our rooms and then match the sensor data to the WebEx data so that we have, we sort of have an understanding of what is the data lost picture there and do we need to not rely on the WebEx data that we need to go out and get an additional source that is more accurate that will give us a better picture of how that room's being utilized. And so we're starting with the WebEx so that we can build the dashboard and then we're going to look at a way to validate the WebEx information. Yeah, no, that's really, that's really cool. And I think as you're talking, I think it's really neat that you're using existing technology because there certainly is a ton of data that exists within organizations. While that data wasn't originally intended to be used the way you're using it, it definitely is a sneak peek, if you will, of what is actually occurring within the organization to raise new questions around, okay, maybe we need to explore this a little bit more, right? Now, you know, the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that are listening to this saying, oh, yeah, he must have an army of people that is able to put Mm -hmm. this all together, right? The woman that helped me put this stuff together was a receptionist in Krakow, Poland. And the way that I was able to find her on one of my trips to Poland, she had just joined my team, and I take the time to meet all of my new employees around the world whenever I travel, or even sometimes I'll do it on WebEx, but I like to meet them, you know, talk about that breaking bread thing, right? And so we started talking, and I said, you know, what's your what's your degree? And she said, well, I have a degree in, in hotel travel tourism. And she said, I was working at a hotel before I came here said, okay, what else do you know? She said, well, that's just my second degree. My first degree is in math. I said, it's in math? You're kidding me. She said, no. She said, I love math. Had I not had that discussion, had I not reached out to really understand what she needed as an employee? Now, this takes time, right? This is not something that, 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 that is, um, easy to do, but had I not sat down with her and said, hey, what do you want to do? What is it you really like? I would not have a dashboard that I would put up against any other company that shows our utilization by department, by day, had I not found this woman and sat down and had a cup of coffee with her while I was in Krakow, Poland. Made that time in my day. So, There are people in your organizations that are going to be your Agneska. Find them 
And you'll be able to do it with your existing staff as long as you have a license to Power BI and you challenge them and reward them handsomely for the stuff that you're doing. The amount of money that she was making as a Power BI analyst versus our receptionist is night and day, right? And, 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 and that's the win-win story there. You know, she, she, she had a fantastic career at Pega and has, has challenged me as a leader. Um, I don't know Power BI from a hole in the wall, right? Um, it's just not something that, that I ever really had enough time to really dig into it, but she just took right to it and, and I can't tell you the number of senior executives that I've shown this dashboard to and they're like, who did this for you? And I said, well, it was our receptionist in Poland. They're like, what? You know, it's really pretty cool stuff. You know, yeah. she's helped us with other technology rollouts and stuff like that. But you'll be surprised. There's there's a there's a, a, a diamond in the rough somewhere within your organization that can help you pull off the beginnings of this. Yeah. Maybe not the finished, but but enough to get people to go, wow, and and then give you the, the ability to take it further because you can actually talk about it. And then and then this is not something that you can just throw over. You got you know, you asked who owns it? Well of course I own it because I understand it. You know, if you don't want to own your data, if you just want to go to the IT guys and say, I want a dashboard on these cards, you're just going to get a dashboard on these cards. You got to be 110% the partner with the person that's building the dashboards so that they get an understanding of what the data represents and what you need to be able to show as far as what's there and then let them run with it, right? Agnesca, you know, kept coming up with new, hey, how about if we slice it this way? Hey, you know, I've got this data. Why don't we sort of see what we can do here? And it was just magnificent. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I know um, from our perspective, you know, we've had several conversations with companies who have uh, their own internal business intelligence team. So they're either using Power BI or Tableau or whatever whatever BI tool it is that they're using. But that team usually resides either as an independent team that services the entire organization or it's within IT. And the problem is always the disconnect between the subject matter expert expert that is in corporate real estate to be able to help or interpret the data that comes out of IT. Because right. I think a lot of companies just say it's data, it's out of my realm, it's that's an IT thing and so let them do it and it's like as you said so nicely is that yes they can do it but then you're just going to get data that looks somewhat you know maybe that you could interpret but if you are truly partnered with that internal bi team and sort of guiding them in terms of what you're looking for the the beginnings of your analytics is certainly going to take a completely different path than if you just let them run with it completely on on their own. So I completely, right. completely agree with you in that, in that regard. You know, and the other <laughs> thing is that I've always said, right, is if, if you don't have a large organization working with a third party provider that has worked with a lot of different organizations is the much better way to go as long as you can get the funding to do it. Yeah. Because you're taking all of that knowledge that has been built working for other companies and applying it to your problem, right? That's the one thing that gets lost on so many of these bespoke 
projects is, yeah, anybody can do it, but not anybody can interpret it. Yeah. And I think the other piece to that, which is also uh, important, is um, when you do go to a third uh, party to do the analytics for you is if you do have access to um, the the data from other customers. So from a benchmarking perspective to say you're doing your own analytics and yes, you kind of look at it and you say, okay, you know, this is how we are, we are performing or how our, our offices are performing, which I think is priority number one. Like, I mean, the benchmarking serves a purpose, but ultimately is you shouldn't be just using benchmarking to guide your policies or your, your direction as, as it relates to hybrid. It should be about your organization, your people, the behaviors and things that are unique to your organization. That should form the basis of, you know, where you are. But taking a bit of a step back is thinking about how corporate real estate tends to think about space and kind of direction and, you know, predictability and kind of all of these things that I think are still there, but they're not as strong as they used to be because we just don't have the history like we used to. When you start to look across the board, even if you're just looking at the last three months or the last six months of data as people start to come back to the office and you compare your organization. So if you're in tech or finance or whatever, and you say, okay, how are we comparing to other organizations? Are we further along in terms of the return to office because that's what our industry is doing? Or are we different in that we figured out how to how to be a remote organization or remote first organization, which has a different significance for us? And so I think that's kind of the piece that as a an independent, if you're doing your own, you won't necessarily get the value of being able to see, well, how does our data compare to others in our industry? And there really isn't a source yet, although there will be one coming soon, um, that gives you that ability to compare how, you know, how different industries are looking in the return to work. And more importantly, what's changed? Because what we're seeing, for example, in our Data. We have a benchmarking report that's actually coming out in the next couple of weeks. You know, when we do a cross section of industry and you look at what has actually changed in terms of workplace preferences or workspace preferences. So, you know, that 35 percent are coming in the office. OK, that's a that's a pretty standard benchmark. We know that that's true and we slice and dice the data. But it's like, OK, let's go next level. What does that actually mean? When we start thinking about the office, because, yes, you can probably reduce your your footprint, your real estate footprint by, let's say, 40 percent or 50 percent. Keep that extra 20 percent for the unknown. And then as part of your second pass, when you get into more of the detail to figure out, OK, how do we reconfigure our space to better suit the requirements of our of our people? Realize that either you're going to need that extra 20 percent, which you've maintained, or maybe there's an opportunity to do an additional uh, an additional cut, but you'll be able to also understand when people are coming in, are they coming in to work at their desk or, you know, use their office? Are they coming in um, where you're seeing a growth in open collaboration space versus the closed meeting space? All of that data starts to surface when you look at space at that level of detail. So I agree with what you said earlier, where the first pass, really all you need is, you know, the badging data. The badging data will tell you how many people are coming in. And so if you've got, you know, millions of square feet of space and only 35% of people are consistently coming in on a daily basis, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that there's, right. there's a ton of extra space. It's when you get into that next level of, okay, we're going to cut space. 
we're going to probably restack our building or we're going to do something where we're going to make some decisions as part of that process. We want to also look at what has actually changed in terms of what preferences people have when they're coming into the office, because that determines the purpose, right? Is, is that people are coming into the office, as you said before, to, you know, collaborate as a team. Maybe they don't come in every day or every week, but when they do, these are the types of spaces that they actually need, right? You know, I, I agree completely. The, the couple of things that, that sort of pop to mind, right? There is point in time data that's important. So, um, and then there's trending data, right? Yeah. I'm a big advocate for trending. It drives my staff crazy. Don't tell me what <laughs> happened yesterday. Tell me what happened over the last four weeks. Let's go in and look at the trend for the last four weeks and see what's causing it to trend that way. Is it every day of the week rising or are there three days that happened over the last four weeks that caused yeah. the trend to go up? Right. And then and then let's drill down and look at those days and see what happens. And it's a matter of going into both Microsoft Office and going into WebEx to see if you can determine what happened. Or is it just that there was a senior vice president in that day and everybody just sort of followed (laughs) in? Right. And so so it's not just relying on the trends, but to understand why the trends are a trend. Um, that's part of it. That's number one. And then can you correlate your survey information? Why are you coming in to people's actual actions on the trending data? So if your survey information is saying everybody wants to come in and collaborate, but your conference rooms aren't being utilized, that's not why they're coming in. Um, and that's the really if you're not that kind of person you need to find somebody that is to be able to give you that insight because that's what senior managers are going to be asking you for as you start to really try to understand what's going on yeah um and and that's you know but the the conference room stuff is a bear an absolute bear to to get your arms around because there's so many different pieces to it for sure so you mentioned you mentioned um you know the senior management and kind of what they're what they're looking for so based on your experience and the findings that you're you know you're surfacing within your organization how has how is your management team responding to the findings so far well, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> um, most of them have come around to understanding that employees want to have flexibility in their in their work life. Some of them continue to cling to the desire that everybody be back in the office five days a week, but they recognize that that's not going to happen. Again, this is challenging people in ways that they have never been challenged before, right? And finding that needle in the haystack, which is the magic, what what's going to work for everybody and satisfy the people that want people back in the office and satisfy people that don't want to be back in the office, we haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, there's still, we, there's still. We, we, we're building a new office in, in the Boston area. Um, we've done some pretty cool stuff. 
reduced the total square footage because we didn't think people were going to be back in to the extent that they were prior to the pandemic. And we'll find out, did I overshoot or undershoot? I don't know yet. We hope that the way that we design the office will draw people in, but it's really going to come down to do we continue to hire people closer to this office or not? I mean, there's a lot of trends here that are going to, are we going to have an economic downturn? You know, it's interesting, you know, uh, similar, similar to, to the pandemic, right? Um, was, was the office dead or not? And, and all of our, our, our real estate um, service providers were, we're planting all of these stories about how everybody was going to be back in the office two months after they sent everybody home and we were going to be back to normal. Well, that didn't come to fruition. The stuff around um, no one's ever going to be back um, now is not going to come to fruition. Um, and the the biggest one now that I read is will an economic downturn force everybody back? And um, I'm not convinced that that's going to be. And there's all sorts of, you know, yes, it's going to. No, it's not. And, and all other kind of stuff. Ultimately, nobody knows. There's no crystal ball. Just as it wasn't a crystal ball back in the 1600s, there is no crystal ball in the 2020s either. Um, it really is going to come down to what does leadership do to motivate people to collaborate in person when it's truly needed and do heads down work in a space that works for them and trust, trust. You know, if you read all of the stuff around this, this is about trust. This is about transparent communication. This is about setting goals and measuring productivity in reaching those goals um, beyond that, which we have never done before. You know, um, it used to be if you were in the office and you could have sort of kept your head down, you were good. That Those days are over, right? And um, it's going to be interesting to see how the, the next generation uh, responds to that. And are they able to have these transparent communications with their employees about their productivity and what they've done? Because that being in the office is not going to be a cover for people anymore. Um, And, and, you know, what have you done for me today is going to become more important than it ever was as far as how people are perceived as being productive. Um, And do we, and have we put in place these measurements, right? I'm not, I'm not so sure that there's that many companies that have taken the last two and a half years to put in objective measurements to determine whether or not hybrid work is actually working for them. You know, somebody told me a story the other day and I, I, I've searched for this and I've not found it yet. And I, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's true, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure that this has been the, this last year has been the slowest period ever for patent attorneys. Now, I'd love to know if somebody's listening to this and they can send you an email and tell me whether it's true or not. I would love to know, but it could be just another, um, 
effort by people to get people back into the office because they're not being um, as creative or, you know, there are all sorts of one people are coming up with great ideas and working on them in away from the attorney. So people aren't seeing it as a new patentable thing. But I would love to find out if anybody knows whether or not patent attorneys are really slow right now, because that would be a really interesting piece. I've heard it from a couple of couple of sources, but I've not found a uh, um, uh, an article or anything like that to, to document it. But if that would be true, right, if that's true, I would have expected to see more documented, but maybe patent attorneys don't want people to know that they're not. <laughs> um, but it, it would it would certainly be an indication of, do we have the same collaboration that we have before and are we being as creative as we could have been? Or are people just spinning their wheels, not doing doing what they need to do today, not thinking about what needs to be done for tomorrow because they're not sitting in a room together. Um, thinking about tomorrow, all they're trying to do is solve for today. But I would that's love really to, interesting. I would love to know if that's really yeah. the case. Because yeah. that would be, that would be the one argument, right? If you were a president of a technology company, if you could get proof that people that were working from home, although people, people are working hard. I don't want anybody to misinterpret this. This is not a statement that people are not working hard because I don't believe that that's the case. The question is, are they are they working on what needs to be done today? And there's a lot of stuff. We're spinning our wheels just trying to stay in communication with each other rather than thinking about the new features and technology that's going to be needed to solve right tomorrow's problems. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good – that's a really, really good point. Never really thought of that, but uh, I can see – I can see that because you're – when you're you're doing sort of your day to day, you're focused more so on the tactical and just getting stuff done. And it's more when you're together that you start thinking more about the future and sort of the direction that you want to take, right? And and you miss, right? So somebody could just solve solve it, but if you had a team of people that were listening to what you were doing as far as how you were going to solve that particular problem for that customer, somebody could have that aha moment. And because we're doing that heads down work and turn to the side and say, hey, what do you think? We tend to just do it our way as opposed to what might be the best way when you have a number of minds working on it. Really interesting perspective when you think about it from that that point of view. Very. Well, Dan, uh, thank you very much for your time today. I love your passion. This has been probably the most fun conversation I've had in a while. So thank you again. I, I love it's it's a fascinating topic. You know, as I say to people, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years, but I feel like I'm a college kid that just graduated and have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. But I know a lot of things about real estate and facilities. And it really comes down to this. We're all in this together. And this is the single biggest um, time of change in our industry ever and uh, data is an important part of trying to figure it out but thanks I really enjoyed the, the dialogue um, there, I don't think there was a quiet period at all no not at all <laughs> have a great day thank you you too